Deschooling is not just about school. It's also about realizing ways that racism shows up in my life. How white supremacy shows up in my life as a black African American woman. As Toni Morrison says, how racism distracts me from being my full self. The exact quote is, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. End quote. That is essentially what this episode is about and my experience with gender activism. Most activists that I'm around know that the school system is rooted in white supremacy. But I think we have a lot of work to do, and this is not just white activists, but also non-white activists. Because we know that you don't have to be white to uphold white supremacy, right? So, I mean, even I have been doing a lot of work. This didn't just come overnight. This is a lot of work that I've been doing to shed in my ways of upholding white supremacy. And so one of the ways that school teaches this is the right or wrong. You're looking for a right or wrong answer. And that teaches judgment. It also limits our ability to communicate it gives us control issues, limits our ability to engage in fruitful discourse with others who don't see things the way we do. And that, with white supremacy and ignorance of other cultures, leads to colonization. And the fact that we are taught so little and such biased information about Africa and other cultures of color, that affects us in a lot of ways too. It affects our ability to imagine the intellectual abilities of that culture. It limits our openness to learning from that culture. We're constantly approaching such cultures as needy from us, from the Western, from the educated, when it comes to gender. The West definitely has a lot to learn from Africa. And Africans, we marginalize a lot of ourselves to fit into the Western gaze and worldview. And pronouns and gender are one way. I mean, we are replacing our languages with English, French, and etc. because we feel we need to. But I know from experience that the West has a lot to learn from us. And so if you are ready to decolonize your activism, which means to learn new language and to just also really be introspective about how this culture has affected your way of speaking, viewing, thinking, everything about others, then please join me and I'm going to create a platform for us, for people who are willing to do the work in that. Check the show notes page. It's going to be a Facebook group called Decolonize Your Activism. 
This is my last episode of Wellness Spiral on Fair of the Free Child. Thank you for listening and thank you, Akila, for sharing your platform. I'm going to continue Wellness Spiral. If you would like to share your story, your wellness journey, your birth story, your pregnancy story, your fertility story, contact me and I would love to talk to you. What I'm about to talk about is something that's been developing since I started learning English over 30 years now. And it's recently just been very infuriating and exhausting to me. So it was difficult to record this, but it was also very much needed and I needed a space to voice my opinions and just get out of my head about it. So even though it was difficult to actually just get down and do it, I knew I needed to do it and I wanted to do it. And so let me start. I'm just going to come playing with it. I started writing several essays about this and I'm going to basically read one that I wrote after a post that I put on my Facebook. And I will share that post on the show notes page. I reject the cis trans definition of gender. My opposition has been gradual. At first, I was quietly uncomfortable because I could not put a finger on why I was uncomfortable. And because I am aware of the self reflective work that needs to be done when one is ignorant as I was about trans issues in the U.S., I know that discomfort is part of unlearning oppressive behaviors. As an unschooling, self-directed learner who is doing the work to raise myself and my daughter to live decolonized lives, I practice self-reflection a lot. So I quietly did the work to understand the roots of my discomfort with the cis and trans definition of gender. And I realized that my discomforts were rooted in unlearning and disrupting white and Western supremacy. Queer and gender-bending activism is based on the awareness that gendered languages support oppressive cultures. But I will also say that queer and gender-bending activism has deep roots in white and Western supremacy. As a doula, I have attended several reproductive justice workshops focused on gender, language, and inclusiveness. All the workshops that I've attended over the past 10 years have been facilitated by white people who identified as queer or trans. These workshops were very interesting to me, and I was interested in learning more simply because of my experience learning English and because the pronouns were one of the most difficult things for me and that brought a lot of judgment from other people when I used the wrong pronoun. 
and also in a philosophical way of coming from knowing two languages that were not gendered. Those were my first two languages. And then switching to English and French in school and in the when I came to the U.S., which were very gendered. So I already had that background and that interest in that philosophy of gender pronouns. I will also add that in these workshops that were facilitated by white people, they often cited the Native American, quote unquote, third gender. But then they could not tell me more about it when I asked about the philosophy behind it. They also would, when I would talk about Yoruba and Fon as having non-gendered pronouns, they would use my example to support their theory. But as I studied my language and the philosophy behind it more, and as I looked deeper into English as a gendered pronoun and the roots of it and the way it affects the culture and the philosophy all around it, I had more to say. I had more to say. And then when I would want to talk more deeply about the philosophies around gendered and non-gendered pronouns, then I was being shut down. And this is when I realized, okay, this is where my discomfort lies because the activism is really rooted in control and Western supremacy. A characteristic of Supremacy is avoiding unfavorable comparisons to others. I've experienced this and I've seen it as an African immigrant because as soon as I stepped foot in these United States, I was taught socially and intellectually that the Western woman is more educated, more independent, more free, uh, has a stronger voice than the African woman. Even though this has never been my experience, it is the lens that I was taught to look at the world through. That philosophy, that way of looking at Africa in comparison to the U.S. and to the Western world is completely rooted in supremacy and keeping that supremacy alive. The truth is that African societies and most other indigenous societies, women are much more powerful than they are in Western societies, in Western philosophy. Women in African philosophy are whew, so much more powerful. Like, And the only time that our power has been diminished and questioned is through colonialism period. That is it. Before that, gender was not, no, I won't even say gender because when I'm saying gender now, you're thinking of gender as defined in the U.S. And it was never defined that way in African societies. Women were never defined the way they are defined in Western culture as less than or as in constant comparison to the man. And so even when I say gender, you're thinking of the Western definition of gender. So I won't say that 
gender was never hierarchical because we never even had that definition of gender. Anyway, so I was talking to my father about my frustrations with the gender activism and communicating my perspective. And it's always so good to talk to him. And so he gave me this book, which is called The Invention of Women, Making an African Sense of Western Gender Discourses. And it was written by Oye Ronke Oye Wumi. And I started reading the book while I was in Bene visiting. And man, it was so good to read this book. It felt so good and so heavy at the same time because I had so much to say. And not just to say that I was realizing how much of myself and my culture has been diminished and marginalized just by speaking English. Yo, oh my God. So, which I guess it makes sense now how hard it is to actually talk to people who only speak English or who only speak Western languages like Spanish or English and French, which are all so fucking gendered. And so it's hard for them to think outside the box. And then their supremacy issues is hard for them to see that you have something to say that they can learn from because it doesn't always sound right. Sometimes the stuff that sounds right is the shit that is just oppression in a flowery language, like being colorblind. So that could sound great. It sounds good. We're all the same. That sounds great, but we're not all the same. And I don't want you to be colorblind. You know what I'm saying? And so sometimes it doesn't sound good, but you need to actually just open your mind up a little bit more. Get out that box. Don't cross the line that's in the box. Actually get out the box. And look deeper into your own education. If you believe that the education system is flawed and is rooted in white supremacy, then you need to actually look at how you embody that because you do. I did. I do. And I still, I do. I will say I do instead of did, but there are parts of me that I've shed because I am aware and intentionally shedding that shit. One of the things that has helped me move through this Again, I was talking to my father because I have the definition of privilege and the way the concept of it has never, it didn't sit well with me. A lot of the things that are being defined as privilege, I didn't see it as that. I just didn't, I didn't have the same definition. And so I was talking again to my father and he said something that just cleared it up for me. You cannot be privileged. You can be given privilege. And so this is made, man, has helped me so much in a lot of ways in my unschooling journey. If I see myself, I see myself and as a privileged person because of me, because of my energy, because of my knowledge, because of my background, because of my everything about me. If you see privilege as you and your energy and the attention and what you bring to the table as a person. So that's how I define privilege. And so then you give privilege to things. 
like, for example, even in nutrition, what I'm eating is what I'm giving privilege to. Am I giving privilege to McDonald's or am I giving privilege to a local farmer? And so that's how I started to define privilege. And then when I thought of it that way, it's a sense of also giving yourself value. Your value, you're valuable, your attention, your money, your knowledge, your voice, all of that shit is fucking valuable. And don't let anybody tell you that it ain't. And so privilege, when I think about this situation of gendered language, I started to think, what am I giving privilege to? And I realized that all my life throughout my education, I've been giving privilege to the Western way of philosophy of looking at life. I've been giving privilege to the English language. And now I need to give more privilege to my mother tongues, my languages that I actually love. I love Yoruba and I love form because they're just so entertaining. And also they just, they're a whole philosophy in themselves. And so because whenever I brought up issues and things that I want to talk to, even this book that I wanted to read and I wanted to share with the birth justice community, and they were not willing to read it. And I would be called things like transphobic and saying like things like that. And rather than take that to heart, I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop giving them privilege of my attention and start giving privilege to this because they're not giving privilege to my background and they're sure enough not giving privilege to my voice or anything that I have to say. So let me just, I'm not going to let name calling define me because you can go into that. And I did. And I'm like, am I being transphobic? Am I being hateful? And I realized, no, I am, I'm not being transphobic. I'm not being hateful. These are words from people who are trying to avoid learning from you and who are trained to distract you from learning about yourself. And they don't even know it. That's the truth. And so I started giving privilege to myself and my culture because the system of white supremacy gives privilege to white people and white culture. And I can't help that. I mean, I can't really completely stop that, but I can give privilege to different things in my life. And that's how I change the world. And that's how we all change the world when we stop giving privilege to the things that this system gives privilege to. So as I said, coming to the U.S. and learning English, I already had a different language that I defined the world through. and. I won't say worldview because, as she said in this book, how about this? This is so interesting. The term worldview, which is used in the West to sum up the cultural logic of a society, captures the West's privileging of the visual. It is Eurocentric to use it to describe cultures that may privilege other senses. The term world sense is a more inclusive way of describing the conception of the world by different cultural groups. And this right here is already something big because I was talking to a fellow birth worker about my opinions. My point is that I don't think it's right for somebody to tell you what to say. 
right there to me is a control, more of a control issue than a gender issue. So I was telling her that I didn't feel comfortable because we were in an organization together. And as part of the organization, we were being told that we had to speak a certain way. Like, And so I was telling her that I don't feel comfortable with that. I didn't feel comfortable, like I said, having somebody tell me what to say. Because inherent in non-gendered languages is that there is no controlling. There is no power. And that's one thing that we have to talk about is that if there is no gender, then how can you make me say one thing over the other? Right? So there is that inherent removal of a power struggle there. And putting it there, it's bringing in different issues. It's bringing in supremacy. It's bringing in control. It's bringing in oppression. It's bringing in Jim Crow. You know what I'm saying? And so that has to be talked about because it's very clear to me. And so she was telling me, well, if you, you're just judging somebody, if they're man or woman, by the way they look. And I'm like, no, actually, I am not. I'm not judging someone by the way they look to see if they're man or woman. When I'm talking to someone, because I grew up in a society that doesn't have gendered pronouns, I am already not thinking of people as gendered. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like I'm talking to you as a person and depending on how you make me feel, how you, different things, the senses, that's how I define who you are. And that's how I define who you are, by sensing. It's not by visual. So the reason that the body has so much presence in the West is that the world is primarily perceived by sight. And you can see that by how racism, there were times when they would measure the cranium size as a testament to who, what you are and how you should be in the world. Skin color, obviously, sex. So everything is by sight. In Western societies, a man's body gives him credibility and a woman's body takes away credibility. So that is, has been rooted in the, in gender, in the, in the sexes for centuries in Western history. And so if we're going to say that gender is cultural, when you're looking at the Western culture, you put this into it. But when you're looking at other cultures, you also need to put into the fact that that has not been the definition of gender. It doesn't have that history of hierarchy. In the span of Western history, the justification for the making of categories man and woman have not remained the same. On the contrary, they have been dynamic. The two categories have remained hierarchical and in binary position. The constant in this Western narrative is the centrality of the body. Two bodies on display, two sexes, two categories, persistently viewed, one in relation to the other. And so this is part of my argument also that you are still very much living in a binary world when you are trying to force somebody to call you by one gender. That is still completely binary, basically. <laughs> I don't know if I'm making sense. And these are the kind of discussions and how it gets when I'm talking to people. And they're just looking at me like, you're being transphobic. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to tell you 
that you are just digging deeper into that hole that you're trying to get out of. So in order to actually get out of it, you need to study other cultures, the cultures that actually have practiced this for centuries. If gender is a social construct, then we must examine the various cultural architectural sites where it was constructed. So yeah, and that's how you learn from others. You learn about the different ways and nuances of having a non-gendered language. And it's so fucking interesting. If people actually were interested in this, man, come on. Come talk to me and let's talk. Despite the wonderful insight about the social construction of gender, the way cross-cultural data has been used by many feminist writers undermines the notion that differing cultures may construct social categories differently. Consequently, in cross-cultural gender studies, theorists impose Western categories on non-Western cultures, then project such categories as natural. An example is the discovery of what has been labeled third gender in a number of non-Western cultures. Presented as gender categories incorporates them into the Western biologic and gendered framework without explication of their own sociocultural histories and construction. And that is where the bulk is. That is where the education is, is in the background, the social, cultural history and construction, the philosophy. And so if you're just taking bits and pieces of other cultures and then imposing Western ideas on these non-Western social categories, then what you're doing is appropriating that culture and marginalizing it and diminishing the philosophy and culture behind it. And so it's colonization. As a Western activist, it's important to not come with the concept that you have the answer. Because frankly, with your educational background, you cannot have the answer. People all around the world know more about your culture than you know about theirs. So how can you have the answer? Especially in this concept of gender and feminism, oppression and all that. Your culture is all that. Everything you learn has all that seeped into it. And so it's best to not come as if you have the answer and to instead come with interest, with curiosity, to learn about cultures that are non-gendered, that are not built on oppression of one over the other, on hierarchy of one gender, of one sex over the other, and come with the expectation to learn and to inquire Because when you do this, a few things happen. First, you are giving privilege to this philosophy and culture. You are making it so that more people will learn about it and talk about it and want to learn about it and teach it. And then you are also going to learn more about your own culture and how it's nuanced, so fucking nuanced. As an activist, Your goal should be to find new ways of knowing, new ways of thinking outside of this oppressive system. In Western construction, 
physical bodies are always social bodies. In Yoruba society, in contrast, social relations derive their legitimacy from social facts, not biology. Biological facts do not determine who can become the monarch or who can trade in the market. So it's a whole different way of thinking. And even in translation and defining Yoruba words, such as obiri and okuri, which have been translated into English as woman and man or female and male, obiri does not completely translate into woman and okuri does not completely translate to man. And the two are not related to each other the way man and woman are related to each other. They're not binarily opposed and they're not hierarchical. It takes studying, it takes practicing new ways of thinking about yourself. And that is what will change the system and how you work with the system. And I'm telling you, this way of thinking, of not thinking of myself constantly as opposed to the man or as in comparison to man, that's been innate in me because I luckily grew up in that society. And it's been so freeing and I didn't really realize how much stronger it's made me in this society that that way of thinking is the way to freedom. Because a lot of times when you're fighting the system, you're still centering the system in your life. And when you're fighting patriarchy, you're still centering patriarchy. And so sometimes it's not the, in the fight, it's in your own changing of the way you think of yourself and then that will bring up your wins in different situations when you are facing patriarchy you will keep winning because of the history of man and woman he and she are very loaded even the sentence she cried and he cried are things that a you may not read a lot of he cried and then there's also different connotations that come into it just because of the history and the biologic, as she calls it, that's been embedded in those pronouns. And that kind of thing does not exist in Yoruba in languages that don't have gender pronouns. Okay is the way you say a person cried. It doesn't even have to be a person. It could be an animal. And so you see, that means People from this kind of language are not genderizing, crying. So it's really so nuanced and so cool. <laughs> I just am so grateful to know Yoruba and Fon and to know a language that is not gendered. I'm so grateful because it's just really shaped my mind and my philosophy. It's made me a stronger person to stand up to oppressive systems. And I'm so grateful for this discussion about gender that's come up in the U.S. I love it, but I believe that the discussion needs to be decolonized and unschooled. So I started this podcast reading an essay in response to a post that I put on Facebook. I use memes and pictures and other media to prompt my writing sometimes. And so this particular time, I used a meme that said, you matter unless you multiply yourself by the speed of light. 
than you energy. That meme somehow led me thinking about gender and the differences between the gender O in Yoruba, which is a gender that is inclusive of all nouns. Like it's the same gender that you would use for a tree or a person or a dog. I use the example Oshubu. Oshubu can mean it fell as in a tree fell. It fell as in that dog fell. He fell as in he fell. She fell as in she fell. It would mean all those things. And so I was thinking about that and you know how that pronouns just captures everything, which is how cool is that? And I was wondering and thinking out loud about what pronoun would best fit in English for something like that to just be completely inclusive. And I thought of the pronoun it. And so I wrote, I was like, and even though it is insulting when it's used to humans, but then that's something that is learned also, isn't it? Anyway, so then this woman basically was tearing me apart, calling me transphobic. And so I was trying to explain to her the cross-cultural aspect that I was trying to get to, which is that was the discussion was about to just have people think about a pronoun that is inclusive. But she tells me, how do you know O is inclusive? You need to ask Yoruba trans people and to see if they're insulted by it. And then you can come and tell me whether or not it's inclusive. And the question was just so ridiculously stupid, like, because it's for everything. There's no other pronoun. (laughs) It's like asking me, asking you if you is insulting or gendered or asking if I is insulting or gendered. It isn't. It just simply isn't. And I don't mean to call her stupid. And I don't like to use the word stupid. And I probably shouldn't have. Anyway, but my point is that the education system that we live in, that we embody, has us thinking in a right and wrong kind of way, which is judgmental. It's either right or wrong. You're not giving thought to what is actually being said. And a lot of our activism is also like that. And which, you know, there is right and wrong. But when somebody is being an activist with you and is trying to have a conversation from a different culture, a culture that you admittedly know you've been educated to ignore, disrespect, and disregard, and a culture that has some aspect of what you are looking for. All those reasons are why you need to make space for that person and that culture to be a resource Reminds me of James Baldwin and the debates that he used to have. And I just feel like the climate in the education now just has limited that type of discussion, that type of involvement and communication between opposing or just different ways of thinking. And that's really dangerous and it limits growth and imagination. Okay, I'm going to end there. If any of this resonates with you or triggers any interest in you, contact me. I would love to keep the conversation going. I think it's so important. And also on the show notes page, on this topic, I created a t-shirt 
to encourage people to decolonize their activism because this shows up in different ways in all kinds of activism. If you like that, check the show notes page. And I'll also include an app on the show notes page that teaches Yoruba. It's a really cool app. It's great for kids and adults. And of course, I'll also add the book, which, by the way, the author uh, mentions my father in the book. He was one of her mentors while she was writing the book. So it's pretty cool. Thank you for listening.